I want you to visualize the events of a particular day. First scene. You're sitting in the back row of a church service. You're thinking all of your regular thoughts when you're sitting in that spot. You're you're looking around at all the people around you who are themselves all looking around. And you're all, or nearly all, all sort of wishing you could be doing something else. But before the leader steps to the front and begins doing the usual thing that happens every week, the back door opens. A man enters. You don't know him, so you're watching him, wondering. Then you're somewhat surprised when he walks to the front, turns right around, and without even using the scrolls, begins to speak, to teach, to talk of God in a firsthand way that you've actually never heard before. He speaks to you of the kingdom of heaven and of knowing God and of being sons and daughters of God. And you're starting to inch forward toward the edge of your seat. The look in his eyes says that every single thing he's presently talking about is real and available. And it's yours for the taking. Which is right when the most terrible sound begins. You see, another man has entered and tearing out his hair and with his eyes on fire, his face contorted, he screams out, Go away! What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And keep in mind, all this is happening in your quiet little church. But that man in front, totally unperturbed, by the words and the look of this seemingly devil-possessed man, just simply says, Shh! Be quiet! Get out! And that man in the back, suddenly loosed, just falls to the floor. Everyone's sitting and just staring at him. And that man in the front says, All right, now where was I? That's scene one. Now scene two, directly after. Because that man in the front now leaves from the church, walks across the village square, then up the hill, and seeing a man he knows up there just enters directly into that man's house. And everyone inside there is quiet, worried, concerned, maybe even looks a little frightened because the matriarch of the family is sick in bed, dying. So the man walks in, walks right to her bed, and takes her hand in his and just simply stands there, looking down on her, quiet. And then everyone in the house watches her color change, her eyes brighten, her entire body gaining strength, at which point suddenly she just throws her legs out of the bed and says, now what should I make for supper? End scene two. Next scene, scene three, It's later that night on that woman's veranda. You see, she had just cooked her heart out, wanting to thank this man who'd saved her life, and now everyone in the family, including that man, is sitting outside. They're sitting around a long, plain table, enjoying the really finest foods available in a modest fisherman's household. The sun is in the process of setting All are quiet, just sort of sitting there enjoying sipping on a cup of new wine, 
when, looking below, looking down there toward the village, they see a long line of people climbing up the hill toward them. There are people with crutches, people being carried by others, people seemingly totally out of their minds, and they're all ascending the hill toward this spot. And in a moment or two, the man will rise, right when they get up here, right when they arrive, and then taking his time, lit by that very last light of the day, he's going to heal them all. Every single person who comes up the hill will go to bed that night with the healing of Jesus of Nazareth upon them. Now, why do I call to mind those events, the events of Luke 4? Well, because the centerpiece of this chapter, Romans 12, is Jesus himself, whose literal body we're meant to comprise. And so I needed you to see and remember what kind of person we're together becoming. And so how will we together, you and me, get there? Well, let's start reading. We'll be reading in Romans 12. And as always, I'll be reading the Phillips translation. Here we go. With eyes wide open to the mercies of God, I beg you, my brothers, as an act of intelligent worship, to give him your bodies as a living sacrifice, consecrated to him and acceptable by him. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold but let God remold your minds from within so that you may prove in practice that the plan of God for you is good, meets all his demands, and moves toward the goal of true maturity. As your spiritual teacher, I give this piece of advice to each one of you. Don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance, but try to have a sane estimate of your capabilities by the light of the faith that God has given to you all. Now, for whatever reason this week, and you know this often happens for me, and I don't know why, this section that I just read to you and its spiritual buildup really reads best to me in reverse. Backwards, it just seems to climb higher and higher. So I want to read to you with a few comments thrown in there, sort of the exact reverse of everything I just read from 12, 1 through 3. So here we go in reverse. Within the light of faith... Try to gain a sane estimate of your capabilities and don't cherish exaggerated ideas of yourself or your importance. In other words, looking at Jesus as the center of your faith, realize that you are actually quite small. You are important to him, but in the scope of all human history, you and I are really quite insignificant and unimportant. And this is okay. It's perfectly reasonable to realize our relative unimportance, and yet it is then immediately time to begin climbing with him. He is calling us higher. He's calling us into a, I would call it a different economy. All right, let's continue in reverse with Paul. He wants to show in you true maturity, how the human life can meet God's demands, and that his heavenly plan is good by proving his point with your life. In other words, the Father wants the life of Jesus for you. 
He wants Jesus's perfection to set you free, and he wants to abide with you like he did with Jesus. The 33 years of Jesus's life are meant to be recapitulated in your life, just as Jesus recapitulated all humanity's story by living it perfectly. Do you see how this is getting a little bit higher and better? All right, here's Paul again in reverse. Here we go again. So, letting God remold your mind from within, placing in its place the mind of Christ, that's 1 Corinthians 2, we will lose all interest. We, we will grow increasingly impermeable to the world's attempts to squeeze us into its mold. In other words, abiding in Jesus, living constantly with his Holy Spirit, we begin to think like him and see the world as he does. Like when you watch the way he went through a day, like that one I just described before from Luke 4, do you sense a high degree of confusion, stress, anxiety? I mean, does it look like he's fumbling around trying to figure out how to fit in or trying to live some sort of self-important life? No! He is at home in the world and the world is forced to bend to him. That is the quality of the kingdom of heaven overtaking the world. And then finally, back to front, thus, having been made holy by him, having been consecrated and set apart by him for himself, give him your bodies, your live, living, alive human selves as a sacrifice for his purposes. This is an act of intelligent worship. It has studied with eyes wide open the immeasurable personal person-by-person bestowed mercies of God. In other words, you've been freed by Jesus. You have been called to God by Jesus. And it's time to come and let him take possession of you. And I mean that, to let him possess you. For... Even though we are small and insignificant, we become monumentally important when we watch his life, when we study the richnesses of his person and personality, and then let him do it all over again in these individual human lives. Friends, we are each part of his person. We are the place where the world is supposed to be able to look and say, that's what Jesus looks like. Which then brings us to this. Now we're going on in verse four. For just as you have many members in one physical body, and those members differ in their functions, so we, though many in number, compose one body in Christ and are all members of one another. Through the grace of God, we have different gifts. If our gift is preaching, let us preach to the limit of our vision. If it is serving others, let us concentrate on our service. If it is teaching, let us give all we have to our teaching. And if our gift be the stimulating of the faith of others, let us set ourselves to it. Let the man who is called to give, give freely. Let the man who wields authority think of his responsibility. And let the man who feels sympathy for his fellows act cheerfully. So does it make sense now why I chose to start with Luke 4? I mean, think about the course of that one single day from the life of Jesus. Jesus preaching and teaching in the synagogue there in Capernaum. 
Jesus serving Peter's mother-in-law and then the sick of that entire town. Jesus living in such a way that everyone who sees him is amazed at the power of God. Jesus giving himself freely, wielding unlimited authority, acting out of sympathy for the lost and broken, and giving himself freely. Friends, the gifts and calling ascribed to the body of Christ, the church, are none other than the personal gifts and callings of Jesus. Which takes us back always and forever to where? Jesus! You see, the greatest mistake that was ever made, and the greatest mistake that can still be made in individuals' lives, is thinking that Christianity is anything at all, anything beyond any other religious system, when it steps to the side of the actual living life of Jesus himself. And I'll break it down for you in those kind of two main streams. You see, the Roman Catholic mistake is believing that the power of Jesus extends through the line of Peter. The Protestant mistake is believing that the power extends through head knowledge of the scriptures. But both of those positions are lateral to the reality of Jesus. The power of Jesus extends directly from himself to every single disciple. We are each, in and through him, living as an extension of him. And it is Jesus himself who is the word, who makes the scriptures true and real. It is his highest work to fulfill them, yes, prove them, yes, and then live them in and through us. The body of Christ will only be and become the body of Christ when every individual member finds their whole life in Jesus. It is he who is the head. That's Colossians 1. We each only properly play our individual part when we are totally, uniquely, intimately connected to him. No one can be connected to Jesus on your behalf. Abiding in him is individual and individualized. And the glory of following Jesus, not necessarily the path of historicized Christianity, is that for each of us, it is always day one. That's what personally keeps me going after it. I love the fact that it is not, to quote somebody, a long obedience in the same direction. No! It is a one day at a time abiding, intimate, affectionate union with my friend, Jesus, the man from Nazareth. And it's obeying him today, not worrying about tomorrow. Friends, Jesus is alive. Religious systems are not. So, having said all that, we then turn to the remainder of this chapter. This is one of the most practical, straightforward, here's how to do it lists that Paul ever writes. But I want you to notice, everything I'm about to read is simply a litany of Jesus's own behavior. This is Paul pointing to him saying, he is how we do it. We abide in him and live like he lived. We allow his life to extend itself through us. And this, by the way, is what it looks like. So, I'm going to read right through this whole rest of the section of Romans 12. And what I want you to do is pay attention to specifically what Jesus himself is highlighting for you. Like, where is he drawing your heart? 
What are those actions of his that specifically grab your desire to follow? And if you listen to this podcast this week or some other week, and one of these really grabs your heart, drop me a text, drop me an email. I'd love to hear from you what is happening in Romans 12 that he is speaking specifically to you about. So here we go. This will be nine all the way to the end for your own listening between you and him. Here we go. Let us have no imitation Christian love. Let us have a genuine break with evil and a real devotion to good. Let us have real warm affection for one another as between brothers and a willingness to let the other man have the credit. Let us not allow slackness to spoil our work and let us keep the fires of the Spirit burning as we do our work for God. Base your happiness on your hope in Christ. When trials come, endure them patiently. Steadfastly maintain the habit of prayer. Give freely to fellow Christians in want, never grudging a meal or a bed to those who need them. And as for those who try to make your life a misery, bless them. Don't curse, bless. Share the happiness of those who are happy and the sorrow of those who are sad. Live in harmony with each other. Don't become snobbish, but take a real interest in ordinary people. Don't become set in your own opinions. Don't pay back a bad turn by a bad turn to anyone. Don't say, it doesn't matter what people think, but see that your public behavior is above criticism. As far as your responsibility goes, live at peace with everyone. Never take vengeance into your own hands, my dear friends. Stand back and let God punish if he will. For it is written, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense. And these are God's words. If thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him to drink. For in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head. Don't allow yourself to be overpowered with evil. Take the offensive. Overpower evil by good. Friends, what's he speaking to you? Go to him with it. And thanks for listening.